welcome to The Academic Citizen, a podcast about critical issues in higher education. The podcast is sponsored by ASAWU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University, based in Johannesburg, South Africa. Our podcast explores a wide variety of issues about university life relevant to staff and students looking at issues in South Africa, Africa and beyond. In each episode, we speak to a guest who has special insight or expertise in a particular subject. And we also bring in student voices linked to that theme. My name is Nosipom Gomezulu. And my name is Mahita Ikani. And And we're we're your your hosts. hosts. My name is Kevia Cardoso. I'm studying journalism at FITS. I think it's high time that languages, South African languages, are incorporated into the academic sphere. Uh, I think it needs to be something implemented by the university itself and encouraged. Um, And in this instance, it seems to be somebody has taken their own initiative um, and done it themselves. And there's a lot of challenges to that. And it doesn't seem like the kind of thing that's nurtured and fostered in academic institutions. So it actually takes courage. And so I admire him. And I think we're going to see a lot of it in the upcoming years. And it just takes somebody like this to take the first step. On today's episode of The Academic Citizen, we talk to Dr. Sheze Kunje, who is currently a lecturer at the Salt Lake University in the Northwest. Dr. Kunje wrote his four-year-long PhD thesis about Amakosa, who settled in Mbembezi, about 45 kilometers outside of Bulawayo in Zimbabwe. He graduated with his PhD in April 2017, making him the first doctoral thesis written in Sukosa to graduate from the university currently known as Rhodes. Welcome to the show, Sheze. Thank you, Susan. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for making time to chat with us. Sheze, I, I remember in my youth in Grahamstown, going to watch your performances and hearing about oh. the amazing work that you are doing. And the first thing yeah. I want to really ask you about is your personal journey. How did you get to where you are now? Can you tell us a little bit about your personal story? I mean, I love the arts and languages. That's all I I know. Art and languages. That's all I've always wanted to you know. Um, since growing up, I always sang at a choir, community choir, sang at church, and all those things. And, and also growing up in being born in rural areas, in Kanduli and Moasa, when I did my schooling, you know, mm. it's very close. It's a closer area. Everything is done in a closer. Even at school, you're taught in a closer. All subjects taught in a closer, including so I think I grew up enjoying, you know, that, you know, it is more about Tosa. I think that's how I got to love Isa Tosa. I got to love Ubu Tosa and Amatos. So, and then I went to Rhodes uh, after I finished my high school and then majored in Isa Tosa, drama and music. And mm. of course, because I was involved in those, doing those subjects, so I was involved in all the activities that I had to do with those subjects. So drama, I involved in a lot of dramas and uh, involved in opera companies and singing and choirs and so on and uh, also involved in uh, poetry uh, circles and doing poetry workshops and, and all that so that's, that's just yeah that's what i've been sort of been doing since uh, well growing up and that road and i'm still doing that even now and i mean mm-hmm. I, i'm familiar with umso and Zwako that uh performing operas and doing poetry the opera element i'm curious about Guti, in this kind of 
classical music that a lot of people often find, Wuti, this is a very intimidating foreign language. I would say, you know, after, you know, you know, during the upper stage with the group areas act and so on, you know, there were things that were meant for white people only, you know, and universities meant for white people only. And uh, it was at those universities that they would offer, you know, classical studies and classical opera music and so on. But after 1994, I mean, it is now, you could go to any university where you wanted to. So a lot of black people got exposed to, you know, classical music and opera music and so on. And we, and we fell in love with it, you know, the style of music. But I think in the process of falling in love with it, we also, you know, as much as we enjoyed it, we thought uh, maybe we should turn to this in our own languages and so on. So actually, my master's research was just on that, on how on the Africanization of uh, opera music. So we started having, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Princess Magogo, uh, the opera, uh, which was done by Opera Africa in Isuzu. And it was did a couple of those as well. Uh, Ingosa Nyanga, the Moon Prince, Kemba and Seliba, and so on. So this is opera music at, at the Western style, the Western frame, you know, the you've got your oratory, you've got your arias, you've got your duets, you've got your recitatives, and so on. But you do those in our own African languages and telling our own stories. So I think that made uh, opera even more enjoyable. So we uh, learnt it, see how it's done, and then we Africanized it, you know, uh, did it in our own way. So that's how I fell in love with opera music. And uh, I mean, I fell in love with the opera music itself and then also enjoyed the Africanization of it. And uh, that thing, I did my master's research around that. So also it's part of the of African languages to show that African languages can do exactly what other languages can do, can do what Italian can do, can do what German and other languages can do. So uh, even now for festival, I've got a show uh, singing Broadway for the National Arts Festival. Oh, wow. Uh, performing and also, you know, some doing some songs in Isikosa to show that in, and also using multilingual, you know, switching from Italian to Isikosa and so on, just to prove and show that people, you know, the languages, our African languages are capable of doing anything that any language can do. So should Categorize our languages as you know. This is better. This is better. This can do this, and this can't do. There's no such thing. You know, we can do whatever we want to do in our own languages, and it's our responsibility to you know show those, develop the material, and present it to to the world to see. That's that's so important. The fact that you've got these uh, multidisciplinary influence in in both the arts and also within literature. I think makes for a very rich way of engaging with uh, languages mm-hmm. because we are pushing Uguti, we're codifying African languages, we're writing dictionaries, we're doing a lot mm-hmm. of translation work. But I think the fact that you engage Ama'ats in doing this, mm-hmm. it actually shows us the ways in which we, we experience language, not just only mm-hmm. as a textual form, but a, also part of performance. Definitely the point, you know, we're trying to make about that. You know, and just to also uh, inspire, you know, show people that this is not about an individual person. I mean, if we make these things and uh, make them individual things and say this is a clever thing and this is, we will never move forward. You know, we need to understand this is, uh, there's no individual here. This is everyone. Everyone has a part to play. So we must all play our part. Because if we make it an individual thing, it will be very hard to, 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 to develop. So we shouldn't wait 
for for another thesis or whatever somewhere else. You should do whatever you can do where you are. You know, because I feel like prof, people like Prof Mugi was young has been you know, talking about this for for decades. And I think as Africans, we've made it Prof Mugi's thing, you know, instead of our own thing. I mean, we've read the colonization of the mind for many times. We know, but we're not you know doing much because we sort of make it an individual thing, Prof Mugi's uh, thing. And, you know, I mean, of course, it has happened there, but I mean, if people, you know, we take this as our own things, as Africans, and, and understand and move forward, I think we'll have more impact. You know, I always make examples about the Chinese, you know, when you hear things about the Chinese study, you talk, they talk about Chinese study, they don't mention the, the name specifically about the individual who did the Chinese study or whatever. Mm. You know, it's a Chinese study, it's a German class, it's, it's all these things. So I think as Africans as well, we need to move into that, you know, owning everything. So this is the first thesis at Rhodes. Uh, it's not thesis, thesis. It's a much closer thesis. African people, this is you know, African people now can produce. You know, it must be known that African people can and a much closer can produce material or academic knowledge in the uh, in the African languages. So uh, you know, I'm just trying to you know because once we individualize and say this is Fleza, now we're going to wait for another Fleza and another Fleza instead of you know working together as Africans and just move forward. Every each and every single one of us playing our part, you know. I think that's that's the point I just tried to make. And because the act of opening up the doors for other yes. people not only to stand at at the podium. Yes. Uh, what I did, I did it because. Of, of the support from other people. So why now when I get it and now it's a crazy thing, it's a crazy or did this and that. No, I didn't do that. It's because of you know, the nurturing I got from growing up, being taught in this closer and all that, all the love. So umtu, umtu nabandu. So and uh, umtu, when umtu achieves something, it's not umtu's thing, it must be an abandu thing. You know, everyone's success and um, and just we need to just all keep working and working together as well. And when Philip mm. was about the, the role of mentorship, so we know that many of historically uh, white institutions and even at historically yeah. black institutions, Gukona, the opportunity to be able to, to conduct research in African languages. But often what yeah. people talk about is that there's a dearth of mentorship. Can you tell us a little yeah. more about your own experience with being mentored into African languages and being encouraged and how you were encouraged to take it up not only at as an undergraduate level but to continue up to postgrad level. Yes. Okay. I didn't really, you know, have a you know a specific a specific mentor sort of guided me and encouraged me. It was just more of a, it was everyone, you know. Mm. It was my life. I mean, let say all the closer people mentored me, you know, because I, I just love is because I love because uh, the culture and all that. So uh, that's what motivated me. And also being at, you know, I was, you know, I did, well, when I got to high school, I did understand, I mean, I did get to see that, you know, there's so much negativity to this because you know, mm-hmm. even though we're, I'm a closer, all of us are a closer, but, you know, when it came to maybe doing uh, English exams or oral exams in English, you know, everyone made a big deal. But when it was a time for Isikosa, you know, it was very, even the teachers themselves, you could see, they're not putting the same effort they put for other, you know, subjects, especially uh, English. And that also sort of bothered me at the back of my mind, but why, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I, I think it was, 
sort of I'm sort of fear because I thought, why? All I know and now how why will I say that Puma is possibly in the Shibutosa Ram and then Young and everything is and so on. I think that scared me a bit and I always wanted to hold on to Tikosa. So and also became a teacher later on, a Tikosa teacher in high school and also it was still the same thing. When it's time for English and other things, you know, people work very hard and all that when it's times for my period because you can see the atmosphere changes and I always wanted to change that you know, and prove to people that, that you know there's so much we can do with African languages and we are the culprits you know but everything is up to us now of course with the support you know at some level the support of the government and so on but for anything to change it has to be African people it has to be Amatosa or Amazulu and so on for anything uh, significant to happen or change in their language we are the ones who have to do that so I think that's what uh, inspired me and of course when I got to Rhodes now uh, to post-grade level I met uh, Professor Raso Kashula who is an easy professor he's an uh, NRF Sachi chair at the moment which focuses the chair focuses on uh, multilingualism uh, intellectualization of African languages and education so he also supported me a lot. He was also the chairperson of the language committee at Rhodes, which I was part of, uh, which is the language committee that uh, language policy. Mm. So he was also he was well, yeah. So if I would have to think of a mentor, I'd have to you know so mention him. And of course with that Dr. Jadezwini was also at Rhodes University. Um, who those I, I worked with. Both of them, you know, for for like, PhD then. So they, so those are quite um, some people that I looked up to at Edwards University. Mm. You know, we were talking mm. to Prof Mlambe here at Wits uh, a few weeks ago, actually, around the intellectualization mm. of African languages. And I'm so mm. glad, Uti, you brought up e-multilingualism as well. Uti, at Salt Likey, because you're in the Northwest right now. So how how do you work with multilingualism? Bearing in mind, it's not just Istros and Isngisi, but we're also engaging with um, Afrikaans. So okay. you... Well, I mean, I've just started, you know, two months ago. So, of course, it's, it's just how I work. You know, I do understand we're a multicultural society, we're a multiracial society, and uh, a multilingual society. And I've been in classes at Rhodes where I feel my language has been really totally sidelined and marginalized and as you know it's made to feel nothing and when i'm in front of class you know i try to make sure that i don't make other people of the other languages feel the same way i felt because it was really not a, a nice feeling mm. so when i teach things like teaching practice and because i'm in the education department i do teach uh, teaching practice and other things where i teach everyone not necessarily about it because about you know other things in, in teaching so i do use uh, I try to use other languages as much as I can. I explain something. I try to, you know, if we've got group work uh, students to explain things or do a project in Sitswana about what we're talking about in Afrikaans and so on. And and just to have a, such an exciting experience when you have, you know, a full lecture hall, you know, people playing with different languages. That's really exciting. And you can see, you know, some people look a little bit, you know, like what is happening. But you can see it's something new and it's something exciting, you know, playing with different languages. And, and learning. What I've learned from that as well, that when I teach, I can teach in English or is it closer, 
And, uh, and people say, yeah, they understand. But someone else, when they explain now in Tsitswana, you can see now they are on another different, uh, higher level of understanding. And someone says something in Afrikaans, that's also the same. So it's a really exciting thing. To, I mean, I don't understand much of any of those languages, but the feeling that the atmosphere actually changes, it's really something amazing. Slowly trying to, when I prepare my slides, you know, ask colleagues and even students themselves put certain things in Tsitswana, in Afrikaans, and so on. Uh, just to, you know, have that. So multilingualism is really important. I think it's something that needs to, you know, also go into research. As we do research uh, as well, we need to, you know, uh, think about that. I think it will probably be a main thing later on in South Africa. But mm. for that to be effective and uh, and work properly, we also have to elevate our African languages because if now you're doing, you are talking about multilingualism, you know, different languages and there's a language that are stronger than others, it won't work. Mm. So for it to be effective, we also need to work very hard on our African languages, get them to the you know, get them to the same level that where other languages are, you know, where specifically English and Afrikaans are to push that by producing knowledge in our African languages mm. and writing academic articles in our African languages and teaching our African languages. Uh, so if we have that as a base, then multilingualism will be very effective. So at the moment, it won't be as effective as it should be if there's languages, if there's no equality in languages. I think it's it's really fantastic, Uguti. You're working within the education space. So your pedagogy, as you're describing, it sounds like a really yes. rich classroom environment because that co-facilitation process, Uguti, are my students now see themselves mm-hmm. as having valid knowledge, which I think is one of the mm-hmm. biggest critiques we have of higher education. Uguti, people arrive, as you, as you mentioned, into a space mm-hmm. where they are made to feel lesser than instead of actually bringing exactly. those experiences into the classroom and actually enriching exactly. that space. So that exactly. I think it's it's yet another the reason why we 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 continuously advocate for it's not just simply about adding for adding sake it's actually showing Uguti, mm. this diversity enriches the learning environment as you des- mm. you so aptly describe in in the case of mm. your classroom I want to move also to just asking you a bit more about your research I know that you've been answering a lot of questions about this community <laughs> MMS um, can you tell us a little bit more about the the community you worked with and how you came to this research topic. I was a teacher uh, teaching drama and music in, in Zimbabwe, Mashona Land, in a school called Peter House Group of Schools. And then I was once asked to do a workshop in Machiavelli Land, uh, a school called Falcon. There was a choir festival or something like that. And then I met a man who introduced himself as Njof. And uh, I that was the first and last time I saw him, and that's all I remember of him in And then he said, uh, he, uh, well, as we were talking, he realized I was Tosa. And then he said, you know that there are Tosa people right here in Zimbabwe? And of course, I was very shocked by that. He said, no, there are Tosa people, there are Tosa schools here, there are, you know, the Tosa culture, they practice all the Tosa culture and everything. And I was very, I mean, I was very shocked, and I struggled to believe that. Mm. Uh, but that stayed at the back of my mind. And I remember I went back to Mashona Land, and, uh, and the staff from there and I asked teachers and they laughed at not a single teacher knew but they thought that was just a big joke <laughs> but uh, he gave me directions and then um, to go to this place uh, and I kept asking people in Zimbabwe in Bulawa in Matabela and, and people didn't know about this and they just didn't believe it and then until I heard in the news that uh, King Zolonke uh, the king of the Kosa people is the first person to visit in Dembezi, you know, 
since oh, the you know since the 1800s and 1900s, when sure. moved, they've never had any interaction with the closer people in the Eastern Cape, and the king uh, was the first person to visit there. So that was sort of a confirmation from them, like, oh, so there are actually people here, and I thought mm, that would have been me now uh, <laughs> if I'd uh, you know moved there quickly. But uh, straight after that, I still I think I was still working on my masters at the time, and then after as soon as I finished, I went straight to the king uh, in Madi. In case, and to just ask more questions about this, and then he did say, you know, there is a group of Kosa people uh, in Zimbabwe uh, who are coming from the Eastern Cape, from places like Omon, Kamakwe, Tujwa, Tuwa, Mushwa, and so on, Tosimama, and so on. But he also didn't have uh, enough information on how they got there and all that. All he knew was that they are there, you know, mm. and so on. So he gave me permission to go there myself as well do your research. So that's how I did. So then I drove straight there and then I went into the area, looked for the chief, and then I went to the chief and I told him my story that I was interested in doing a research about this uh, because I've been doing a research and there's nothing, I can't find anything written about them. Mm. And he gave me permission to work with them. So, and then I just worked there for the next three years. I was there, you know, attending functions and, and everything and just looking particularly at how, because I was so impressed with the language that, you know, here we are struggling to finish one sentence without putting a English conjun- conjunction here and there or whatever. Mm-hmm. And these people have been here for hundred and uh, you know fifteen years at the time, and they still speak Isitosa. And Isitosa is not being taught in schools and all that, but they still speak it. So I was interested in in, in researching on how the language has, has, has survived for so uh, many years and so on. So I spent the you know those three years with them and just uh, looking at, at that. And I'm curious. So what he, how how has the community been able to preserve the language and also bearing in mind and so obviously yes. it's closer yes. in the Eastern Cape, closer in Cape Town yes. has yes. over the years yes. changed. How have you yes. found uh, in Zimbabwe the language also yes. evolved? I think the fact that they're sort of a smaller group, I mean, compared to Amakosa in the Eastern Cape, uh, as much as they are amongst the Mandebele and Amashona and other uh, minority groups in Zimbabwe, but the fact that they are a smaller group in one particular place when they arrived in Zimbabwe, I think that has played a great role. So I said the land, the fact that they were given a piece of land to stay in and stay there. So because of that land, they were able to practice their culture, you know, if it was a culture there. And you know, that language and culture are things that cannot be separated. You know, we use uh, language to express our culture and all this. So those cannot be separated. So they got to uh, practice their culture. And then within culture, you've got all sorts of things, songs. So songs played a very big role, you know, in, in the African culture because, you know, every gathering there has to be a song. Whether it's a fair gathering or a happy gathering, there has to be a song. song. And in those songs, there's also history embedded in those songs as well, mm. uh, which, you know, plays a, a great uh, role in preserving the language. And also uh, religion. They were religious people as well. They have churches, they have Methodists, they have Anglicans and so on. And then in those churches, they had, you know, if it was Bibles and, and and hymns in in, in Isikosa. So they used to get those exported from South Africa and so on. So that was, you know, for the the main place, churches were the main place where they could find written Isikosa. And they also, when they moved, they moved with those, uh, with the South African literature classic books that were, you know, uh, produced by Ovin Kayi and other people. So they had 
copies, those copies circulating. Mm. So, you know, when they speak in gatherings, once in a while, they quote Nkai here and they quote uh, something, you know. So those books, they had them, they've got knowledge about, you know, classic Isikosa books that they've, you know, kept. And uh, lately, technology and social media, they've got a uh, uh, Facebook group, they've got WhatsApp groups and so on, where they communicate in Isikosa. And uh, in 2013 in Zimbabwe, the Isikosa now is officially recognized in the uh, Zimbabwean constitution. Oh. So I think that also boosted them a lot. And so that was endorsed in 2013. In 2014, they started introducing Isikosa in their schools again. You know, now they, you know, they started teaching Isikosa in school. So those are the things that I've, you know, sort of looked at and said, you know, these are the things that have played a big role in uh, preserving Isikosa. In it's so fascinating, again, referring back to my conversation with Uu, or Prof. Mklambi, that the, the misconception about African languages, Ubuti, they are only oral, and not to actually disparage because orality is very important. I'm curious, Ubuti, you also bring up the fact that there, there's written, you know, there's Omkai, there's Ipaipeli, there's also music and then ritual, all of which inform the ways in which the language is not only preserved, but then evolves to the point yes. where online uh, social media it's also a part yes. of the of the changing landscape of african languages yes. and i think this is yes. such an important point which is is very rarely highlighted when we speak about african languages we continue to look at it through these very strange strange eyes of looking back mm-hmm. as if these our languages don't evolve as if aren't constantly reflecting the times that we are in so that's really that's really fascinating. Muti, the textual yeah. nature is a huge part yeah. of the preservation yeah. of the language in a different context. And now, just to be an even bigger nerd, I want to get into your ethnography. I really want to know, Muti, when you when you are conducting this grounded research and conducting ethnography. What were some of the, the, the things that you learned about that you couldn't access through the archives or even what, that weren't recorded in the archives, like in the yeah. grounded research? Yeah, couldn't find any material or anything written about uh, these people in archives. Uh, not even Le Diaria Cecil John Rhodes? Yeah, not even Le Diaria Cecil John Rhodes. Not even, uh, there were letters. Uh, that was sent between, you know, you know, Rhodes and Amatosa and South Africa and so on. And they actually signed, they call it a blue book, <laughs> blue book, they signed blue book and so on. Uh, but I couldn't even find those those things that they signed and all that. But um, some, one of the archaeologists said, so when during the Second World War, there was um, a museum or archives in London that was bombed and a lot of information they said that is that when they signed, everything was sent to London. And uh, sure. during the bombings in London, they, they made that's where all the information uh, disappeared. So those are just the things that I couldn't yeah. you know, access. And uh, well, some people told me that they used to write in the newspapers in mm. Zimbabwe. And I tried to, and, you know, I spent uh, you know, months and months you know, going through all the Bantu mirrors, one of the oldest newspapers in Zimbabwe, trying mm. to find those texts and things. But now I couldn't find any of those. But, you know, I got more than enough spending the three years with the people there recording everything. There's actually so much data that I haven't even had a chance to look at it because there was just so much about those people. So, but I decided to just focus on the data that looked specifically on the preservation of language.
And did you find there were generational differences? Like, do the young people growing up in Zimbabwe see themselves as connected to Amakosa in South Africa, or is it different between the generations? You see, now that's a very complex thing that I think it probably needs a historian, not a linguist, to do this. Yes. <laughs> because there's actually a big group uh, called the Sojini Cultural Group that's made up of only Amakosa from Zimbabwe in Johannesburg. There's about 4,000 of them. So I met with a leadership on Monday and they expressed how they feel they're so displaced and homeless in a way. They feel they mm. don't belong in Zimbabwe because they, there's a big number of them in Zimbabwe who've never been able to get identity books because their parents that certificates or books are South Africans. Uh, so they're told in Zimbabwe to go there, to go get uh, their identity books in South Africa because they don't belong there. Mm. And also in South Africa, it's another big challenge. Uh, they, you know, they made an example about a lady who's been trying to get uh, identity books since 1993. And even today, Homer says, has sent out people to go investigate in the Eastern Cape about where she comes from and all that. There's a lot of paper trail on that, but she still hasn't been able to get her ID book. So it's a very complex situation, and they've been working with home affairs since Dr. Nkosazana Lamine Zuma, and they even sat down with Minister Manusi Gigaba when he was at home affairs, you know, trying to explain this. But also in Bembezi, the land is generally quite nice land, nice and flat and productive, you know. So the older generation, they more uh, they enjoy their farming, you know. But still, not everyone, because on Sunday, another man who was 97 years old, he, he died on Monday. I've mm. mentioned him in the research as well. And apparently before he died, he said he wanted to be buried at home in the Eastern Cape. And now his children, they how will that be done? He doesn't have any papers that says he's from the Eastern Cape. So it's a very heartbreaking mm. situation. You know, they need intervention, but I don't know, you know where to start. But I don't even remember what the question was now. I just got... No, I mean... It's, a, it's about the, the, the grounded research. And it, it, yeah. what really is striking me is that the perception of Uti, there will be a theory you will find in some linguistic textbook written in the global north that will help explain is obviously is not true because right now you, you're telling us uh, uh, these narratives about the problems of borders, the problems of nationalism and this idea Umkhosa who lives in Zimbabwe is no longer Umkhosa and, and, and bringing really to practical vision this this idea that Africa and its borders don't make a lot of sense when you start to actually speak to Abantu Bas Africa to, to understand mm-hmm. somebody can be from both these disparate mm-hmm. locales. And yeah. so yeah. I think this is it's it's, it's really central. Uti, we do conduct grounded research. We do have ethnographies yeah. written so that this kind of information can also be shared and not just simply translated as it were. So this is yeah, this is really yeah. it's really rich and 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 yeah. really important important work that you're doing. Yes, uh, and uh, yes, just to add on that, I think it's really important that we write our own stories because I think there's a big difference when someone else comes and look at us and then go write about us, and rather than one of us giving us a chance to tell our own stories and present them as they are, because there were few 
like one paragraph somewhere that would write about say, and say these were the closer people who ran away from the Eastern Cape or who were part of the pioneer column of social journals because they were looking for jobs or they were domestic workers and so on. And those stories are not true about these specific closer people. And then they are there because they were written by other people writing about mm. us. And there are so many stories that haven't been told about us. And I'm still waiting for more stories written by African people about as many. I think still uh, research that needs to be done there, you know, find out mm. what actually happened. So I think it's really important that as African academics do something about this. And I mean, especially if we want our African knowledge to be introduced more in the university level. So uh, it's really important. Sure. I mean, I know you've just started, as you mentioned, at uh, Salt Blakey. And I, yes. I, I'm wondering, Nguti, what in your role at the institution or maybe in your larger networks, how are you creating these bridges to connect? I I hear that you're meeting with particular leadership, that you've met with people who are wanting to share their stories, but how are you building those networks and connections between people? I've just moved from Grandstown to here. As I said, I've just been here for two months and at the moment, I'm just collecting things and just putting things together. I haven't really decided on how I'm going to move forward with you know everything else. But the main thing, or oh, personally, that I want to do to produce material in African languages, write academic articles in music closer. Presenting mm. conferences, right now in June, we've got an Alaska International Conference happening at Rhodes. Well, I'll be presenting from the thesis in music closer. Uh, yes, I am having meetings with different people and, and all that, but I haven't decided exactly how to move forward. Because all I know is that I want to see material produced in our African languages. Mm. So I think I'll probably do whatever it takes to make sure that it happens. No, um, I think I think that's so that's so key because even mm. in, in presenting in conferences and producing the materials and, and doing that mm. central work of representation, you are mm. taking the conversation forward. You are showing mm. and not just only, you know, pontificating Nguti, we should do African languages, but you, your work, the embodiment yes, yes, of this vision, yes. which which yeah. I think is absolutely yeah. fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I said in one of my country lectures in conference that I feel like we've been discussing and having big meetings a lot and there's been more discussions, more than action. That's why I'm saying I feel like every university now should make sure that something is happening around the intellectualization of African languages. I wrote had a fantastic vice chancellor, Dr. Mabizela, who supported, you know, the intellectualization of African languages. And also here at Salt Lake, here, I've got uh, Professor Ms. Balim, who also supports the intellectualization of African languages. But I think it's also time for them as well to take it a step further and maybe knock in each and every department and find out what is actually happening here. What are you doing and how can we help? How can we make sure that something happening in the maths department, in the sciences, so that something actually happens, you know, about this. So let's now talk and let's do more as we talk, as we discuss on, around this you know, decolonization of African languages. Because, I mean, this is 23 years after democracy at Rhodes and only now you're getting a first thesis written in Isid Kosa. I think it's, something has to happen. This Isid Kosa thesis is not coming from maths or education or whatever department. It's coming from African languages department. Mm. These In African languages department, you have people starting to be experts in African languages. And those people have been, for 113 years of Rhodes University, they've been producing material. They're learning to be these experts in these languages, but they cannot produce this material that they're producing in the languages that they want to be experts 
vaccine. It's a bit shocking, you know, if you think about it, that you're mm-hmm. learning to be an Isikosa expert, but you cannot write in Isikosa. Yeah. Only now we're celebrating that this is from Isikosa department and we're the first one written in Isikosa. I think we still have a long way to go. So we'll be even much more happier when you have a Tosa thesis from Rhodes University coming from the education department and later on coming from the next department and so on. Mm-hmm. And at Fall Party and written in Sitswana and from other faculties. But we said we got hope. We rightfully celebrate the milestone because, as I said, it does open up the doors and, and allow for that conversation to become a central part of, of the institution. So, because we are at, at the academic citizen trying to also encourage young academics and the people who want to expand their own knowledge and fields of, of understanding, I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you for just two Two Iskosa novels that you would recommend that people who are interested in learning more about Iskosa or even just yeah, reading an, a, a yeah, novel in an yeah. African language, what what two would uh, you recommend? by W. B. Khubusana. So that would be number one Iskosa novel. And another one that I was I'm reading it now, I think it is done, it's called right here Ubulungo Bezinja so I'd recommend those two and I'd say you know, go read those two and uh, and see Zipinkomo Ubulungo Bezinja as an old novel yeah Zipinkomo Magwalandini I think it was first published in 19 or first edited in 1906 but it's still available you can still get it by Khubusana and another one is Ubulungo Bezinja the, the name of the author just ran out but for some novel full of satire and I think it talks a lot to the situation that we've been in, in as black people and uh, also as you know, and currently, you know, as we're talking about decolonization and so on, I think it, it does touch on those things. Wulungo Bezinja, I think the guy is called Siongwan. Uh, Thank you so much. Okay. This is, okay, yes. so Zipinkomo Magwalandini, Wulungo Bezinja. Zipinkomo, Zipinkomo Magwalandini by Khubusana and Wulungo Bezinja by Siongwan. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Le. Really appreciate your time and thank you for the amazing work. And I yes, look forward to yes. that when we, we bump into each other, or maybe okay. at Soap Likey, we can okay, all then. learn a bit yes. more from your work. Just so on the mentorship, you asked me something about the mentorship. Uh, I was just wanted to also talk necessarily about a physical individual that you speak to. I think, you know, authors and just reading books and people, you can have a mentor. For me, you know, I also look at people like uh, Prof. Young as, as my mentors. You know, I haven't really sat down with them. And just by interacting with their writings, I feel like they are doing quite an impact in my life. Mm. And uh, on another one, yes, on, you know, just the thesis with the people of Zimbabwe. Uh, what I think is more significant about it is that it's a first at um, Rhodes University, named after a colonial oppressor called Cecil John Rhodes, and is the same man who displaced the Kosa people mm. from the Eastern Cape to Zimbabwe. So I think it's, it's, it makes it quite special that this business is not coming from UCT or Selimbosh or another, but it's actually coming from Rhodes University, about Rhodes who displaced the Kosa people. So I think that's fine, that's quite special. And that's something I thought about it before I wrote the thesis, but it's something that I just, as I think now, it mm. actually makes this quite a special thesis. Mm. No, indeed, certainly. Uh, Thank you yeah. so much.
Um, hi, my name is Uzamaye Khapita. I'm an honor student from the Witt School of Journalism. So my thoughts on Dr. Kleze is that I think him writing his thesis um, in Kosa is an excellent initiative. I think it's incredibly inspiring and it speaks to an example of transformation and decolonizing um, our curriculum in the ways in which we are learned and taught um, to, to sort of approach academia. I think it, it, it speaks a lot to how it is important for us to, to use our own languages and it's liberating and inspiring. Yeah. The Academic Citizen is a podcast sponsored by ASAU, the Academic Staff Association of WITS University. ASAU is the union representing the interests of academic staff at WITS. For more information, visit www.asau.org.za. The Academic Citizen aims to be a platform for a diversity of views and opinions. We welcome your feedback, comments, and suggestions for future guests and shows. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or leave a comment at www.theacademiccitizen.org. Research, scheduling, editing, and production was done by me, Simba Rashe Wondem. Jager Malko created our jingles. <laughs>